Well, hello and good well and good morning, afternoon or evening to you, whatever time of day it is when you may be tuning tuning in. Welcome. This is Reverend Kay Mortimer with Covenant Truth Ministries, and this is episode three hundred and fifty nine of our Bible Bites as we continue reading through the scriptures this year and we're drawing near to the end of the book. Praise be to God, and some of the uh, some of the best is yet to come still, because we've got the book of Revelation ahead. Today, we are looking at our reading being in 2 John, 3 John, and the book of Jude. All three of these books have only one chapter. They're very small books, but they are also packed with some beautiful uh, things that we need to see. Second John, the book of Second John, the author is John the Apostle. Now he lists himself in the book of Second and Third John as he calls himself the Elder. Now <clears throat> that is not a second person; it's not a different person than John the Apostle. The John the Apostle, <clears throat> by this time, was by the time of this writing was um, the only. As far as we know, the only disciple, original 12, that was yet still living at the time. Most of the others, if not all of the others, have been martyred by this time. We know that Peter was martyred in about 60, 67, 64 AD, somewhere in there. Uh, I don't have my church history complete yet in terms of the dates, but he was martyred in the 60s AD. Excuse me, I'm so sorry about that. Um, so we know that um, Peter had been martyred. James had been martyred early in, James the brother of John had been martyred early in the early church. We read about that in Acts, I believe it's Acts chapter 5. So these, he was the, he was the main one left. He was the only one left of the original twelve. So, and he was also an elder. He had become a pastor. He had become a bishop. He was recognized by the church in that day as an elder of the church. Matter of fact, he was called a pillar of the church. Um, James, uh, James, the brother of Jesus, the half brother of Jesus, Peter, and <clears throat> John here are all uh, referred to by um, in earlier passages as pillars of the church. So John is using that title because he knew that they would recognize his authority and his leadership by using that. So he, it is the same. It is John the Apostle who is also known as John the Elder. <clears throat> now, Second John was written probably shortly after First John. So it was probably written about 90 A.D. or so. Um, it was similar in its content and so forth with First John and some of the things that he was stressing, especially about refuting lies and falsehoods. <clears throat> the audience, <coughs> excuse me, please. The audience for the book of Second John is kind of in debate. Um, it's between either a literal translation of an actual person or um, was it figurative? Was he referring to the church in general? 
So the real person, you know, some have even speculated that could be, could have been Mary, Jesus' mother in this day that John was calling the elect lady. However, it's doubtful, in my opinion, because she was probably dead by the time of this writing. She would have been um, in her early teens or mid-teens when Gabriel came to her, and then, of course, she had the baby shortly before B.C., um, some debate that whether it was 2 B.C. or 4 B.C. or 6 B.C., but it was somewhere in there. And then, of course, you know, Jesus grew up and he died on the cross. He was 33 and a half when he died. So, you know, already by the time of his death, Mary is looking to be 45 to 48 or so years old. And then, you know, this is 90 A.D. She was most likely had died by that time. So I doubt very seriously it was to her. Now, could it have been to another prominent woman of God, perhaps? But I do believe that it was speaking primarily of the church as a whole. Um, Paul referred to the church in female terms. He called us the bride of Christ, that Christ, we've been espoused to one husband as his wife. Um, he talks about the bride and Jesus coming back for a pure and spotless bride. He talks with the husbands about how um, they need to lay down their lives like Jesus did for his bride, for his church. So it's most likely speaking figuratively of the church as a whole. And possibly it could have been by that time that this became uh, a code word for the church as a whole as well, because this was during the time when the persecutions had started arising and so forth. The purpose of Second John is to refute false teachings about who Jesus is. John clearly declares that Jesus is the Son of God come in the flesh in a real physical body. So his theme in writing this book is to guard the truth against false teachings and stand in the truth. Have your feet dug in and you will not be moved out of that. <clears throat> So, Second John, it only has the one chapter. So, in, in the first four verses, we see the word truth mentioned five times, which is, uh, you know, tells us that this is his theme. His theme is to focus on the truth. He wants you to know the truth. Matter of fact, he says, <clears throat> I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth as we have received commandment from the Father. Then he goes on and he pleads with them to <clears throat> obey the commandment to love one another. And love will walk out in actual obedience to the Lord. He talks about how there's many deceivers gone out into the world at that time. Now, that's still true today. But John is warning them <clears throat> about it in that day. He speaks about those that do not abide in the doctrine of Christ. He says that he who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. But he says that the others that do not, they are transgressors. He says, if anyone, verse 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, the true doctrine of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is God in the flesh, the Son of the living God, hallelujah, if anybody comes to you 
and does not bring that, he says, do not even receive them into your house, nor greet them, because otherwise you'd be sharing in their evil deeds. Hospitality. <coughs> Man, I'm sorry. Hospitality was um, well known and accepted and even uh, considered mandated in that day. So he's telling them, he says, if somebody comes with another gospel other than the truth of what you know to be real and the gospel of Jesus, affirming that Jesus is God's son in the flesh, he says, don't even receive them. Don't take them in. Don't share a meal with them. Don't share with them or give them lodging. <clears throat> so he tells them, he warns them against that. And then he greets them, and he speaks about the children of your elect. Sister, greet you. Amen. So he's talking about the church that's with him as well, which is another indication that this is speaking to the church as if it were um, a lady, an elect lady. He's calling the church the elect lady. Third John. The book of Third John, the author again, John the Apostle, also known as John the Elder. Now, this, the date of this one is a little bit unsure. We're not sure if it was before or after the books of First and Second John. First and Second John both deal with false teachings, but Third John deals with a different type of threat. There was a leader, Diotrephes, who came and he began to minister to the church as an itinerant minister, <clears throat> which was customary in the days of the early church. But perhaps through pride or some type of selfish ambition, he began to exert dominance and undue control over this church. He refused to allow true ministers to come. He drove away true saints, and he was in a clear violation of what Scripture had defined as the job of a true shepherd. For instance, from 1 Peter chapter 5 and Ezekiel chapter 34. So John writes 3 John to this Christian named Gaius. He was a Christian in the church, possibly one that had been able to, um, had the resources and so forth to take in itinerant ministers and John writes to encourage and guide him um, to not do that and to hold the course, hold the truth, hold to the truth until John himself could come and deal with this problem. Here again, Third John has only one chapter. I want to read verses 2 through 4. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. I do believe that that is the will of the Lord that he expresses here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. For I rejoiced greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. Notice this, verse 4. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. John saw himself at this point as if he were the father over this church, and they were considered by him as if they were his own children. And he says, the only joy, the greatest joy you bring me is when you walk, when you live in the truth, when you live the lifestyle, when you live in obedience to the commands of the Lord, to the word of the almighty God, when you live as a Christian and live in a way that pleases God, that's the greatest joy you could possibly bring me, John says. 
Now, I want to read verses 5 and 6, because verse 5 and 6 form the basis and the foundation of Covenant Truth Ministries. The Lord gave me this scripture years ago, and this is the basis upon which our ministry is founded, because this is our desire. He says this in verse 5, Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well. It is the desire, my desire, and the desire of Covenant Truth Ministries and every ministry project that we do so that we will bless you and send you forward on your own journey with God in a manner worthy of God. That's why we try to proclaim the truth and we are devoted to telling you the truth. We're not going to sugarcoat it. We're going to teach and preach the truth to the best of our ability and the best of our understanding, trying with all of our might to rightly divide the word of truth. And we want to give it to you and feed you the truth from the word of God, hoping that this will influence you in a manner so that you will then go forward in your own walk with God in a manner that pleases him in everything that you do in every way you live, and in everything you say. That is our desire, and this is the foundation of our ministry. And I pray that you may adopt that as well, that philosophy, so that whatever influence you may have, whether it's in your home, in a, a ministry job at church or whatever, at work or whatever it is, that you also will devote yourself to sending others forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God. Praise be to God. Hallelujah. And then we will be able to hear the words from our Savior on that day. Well done. Praise be to God. Then I want to turn over to the book of Jude. Another short book, only one chapter, but loaded. <clears throat> and I want to spend the rest of my time talking about this. The author of this book is Jude, or Judas, the, the half-brother of Jesus, he also says here he doesn't claim his connection to Jesus, but he does say he's the brother of James. He is the brother of James, the half-brother of Jesus. This is Jude. He's listed as one of the brothers of Jesus in Matthew 13:55. He also recognizes that he is not an apostle himself, but he calls himself, <coughs> notice this, <coughs> excuse me, after the resurrection of Jesus, both James and Jude, his brothers, his half-brothers, now consider themselves bondservants, doulos. They're the ones that said, Master, we'll serve you the rest of our life. And so now they've come to see Jesus as their own Lord and Savior. This was probably written between 60 and 64 A.D., and certainly, we believe, before the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. Now, <clears throat> Jude's purpose is <clears throat> excuse me, somewhat twofold as well. It is to encourage the Christians to avoid false teachings. And he explains quite a few of these, gives Old Testament examples and so forth. And to contend for the faith. 
be bold and hold to the truth of the faith of Jesus Christ, the faith. He says in verse 3, this is still applicable to us today. He says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. We live in a day where we still need to contend for the faith. The true faith, the true gospel of Jesus is under attack. And he's going to get into some of how it was under attack then, and you will see that it's the same with us today. (coughs) He starts talking about these false teachers, and he says (coughs) that they turn the grace of God into lewdness, and they deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that word turn is talking about them exchanging it. In other words, they take the grace of God and they put in place of it lewdness. So what is lewdness? It is unbridled lust, or in some places it's translated licentiousness. All kinds of sexual pleasures, immorality, excess, and shamelessness. So what these people do is they've crept in unnoticed. They've crept in stealthily. They've come into the church stealthily, not being recognized at first. And they've weaved their way in, and now they're trying to teach and promote that instead of the grace of God, go back to Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 15, and you will understand the truth of the grace of God. It is a teaching grace. It is a keeping grace, but it is also a teaching grace. And it teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and to live holy for the Lord. Go back and read it. It's right there in the book, and it defines the truth about the grace of God. So what these people have done that Jude is talking about here is they've taken that truth, and instead of believing and accepting that, they have replaced that with lewdness. Now, how does that apply to us today? Well, there is a big, big time, mega church, seeker friendly kind of doctrine of hyper grace that's going on. Now, I have no problem with large churches that adhere to the truth of the word of, the, of God and are preaching and teaching the truth about the gospel. And they are bringing people not only to faith in Jesus Christ, but to maturity as a disciple with holy living as its evidence. I have no problem with that. None whatsoever. Moses had a mega church. Peter ended up having a mega church in the first three or four chapters of Acts. He had 8,000 members. I have no problem with a mega church that is right on track with the Word of God, teaching and preaching the truth, not discounting it, not sugarcoating it, 
And it's coming through in real, in the making of real true disciples who are living out the faith in holy living in this world. That is, I'm all for that. But what these people were doing is they were coming and they were saying, well, you don't, you know, this grace, grace covers it all and you can just live any way you want to. And that's what we're seeing in some places today. And that is evil. It is wrong. It is false doctrine and it cannot be, um, it cannot stand against the truth of the word of God. That is not true. And that's what Jude is speaking against here. Those are the kinds of people that he's talk <coughs> talking about and the false kinds of belief and doctrine that they are teaching. And we must reject that and instead contend for the truth. <coughs> so this is what he's talking about here. Now he gives the examples. He gives several examples in this book. First, in verse 5 through 7, he gives examples of the children of Israel who God had delivered them out of Egypt. But then they denied him. They rejected him. They said, no, we're not going into the land. We, we don't believe that you are bigger than the giants. And we see ourselves as grasshoppers. We, we've got no hope. And so we're not going to believe your words. So God said, okay, turn around, go back in the wilderness and wander around for 40 years. And, and every one of you is going to die off. So he uses that example. He uses the example <clears throat> that of sinning angels. And that goes back to Genesis 6 and uh, what some believe to be the Nephilim and all of that. That's a, another whole topic which we won't get into. But he talks about how these angels, whoever they were, are held in everlasting chains of darkness until the judgment day that's coming in Revelation chapter 20. We'll read about it. Then he goes on, he talks about Sodom and Gomorrah and how they, um, the vengeance upon them for their evil, how they, how, how they had been so perverted and continued in such evil that they received the judgment of eternal fire. So he gives sobering examples here. He goes on and he describes these people in more detail. And he says, you know, of these people in verse 8, he describes them. And then he says in verse 9, yet Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring an, against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. In other words, <clears throat> even Michael, the archangel of God, wouldn't act with this kind of arrogance and insolence when they were disputing, when Michael, uh, the devil was disputing with Michael over the body of Moses. Now, the body of Moses, Moses did in fact die. God himself said that. If you want to read it, you can go back and read it in Deuteronomy 34 and in Joshua chapter 1. God came to Joshua and he said, Moses, my servant is dead. He's gone. He's dead. Moses died. And I believe that the reason that God himself buried the body of Moses and would not allow the devil to have that is because it would have been idolized. Imagine the shrines that would have been built for the body of Moses as if he were some idol. Why do we say that? Because they did that with the ephod of Gideon. And they did that with the brass serpent that Moses built and put on the pole. Because we read about it later in the scriptures. So I believe that was 
uh, perhaps why this event happens, and Jude tells us about it. But the point Jude is making here is even the authority that Michael had against the devil, he still would not speak with arrogance and insolence, but he said, rather, the Lord rebuke you. In other words, God will take care of you. God will handle you. I'm not getting out of my place here. I'm not speaking above and beyond what I should say. He goes on and he speaks about Cain, Balaam, and Korah expressing the degree of this perversion and sin and how much it inflicted upon them the, the judgment of God and how they're standing in um, liable for this judgment of God, in liability for that. He uses imagery in verse 12 and 13. He says they're clouds without water. In other words, you know, you, you see the, the clouds that look all rainy, like they're going to give you the refreshing rain when it's been dry and parched for a long time, and then nothing happens. No rain. There's nothing there. He talks about how they are late autumn trees, twice dead and uprooted. Talks about how their raging waves and their foam that they bring to the shore is their own shame. He talks about them being wandering stones reserved for blackness and darkness forever instead of being able to give light and have any light. I want to read verses 14 and 15. We'll begin to draw to a close here. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly, among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So we don't always think of there being a prophet way back before Abraham, way back before Noah, but there was. Now we know in Genesis 3, chapter 3, especially 3.15, that the Lord himself prophesied in Eden. But after that, the very first prophet may have been Enoch, the seventh from Adam, because Jude picks up on that and tells us this prophecy. And what God allowed Enoch to do was to see about 6,000 plus years into the future. And Enoch literally saw the um, coming of the Lord that is written for us by John the Apostle in his last book, Revelation, in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 through 15. Praise God. <clears throat> so Jude continues on and he recounts the apostles' teaching and possibly even references some of their writings earlier that warn about the mockers, especially the writings of Peter. In verse 20 through 21, as we begin to draw down to a close, I want to read this to you. He says he's talked all about these ungodly people and about the condemnation they are under and, and how, um, how we need to avoid them and contend for the truth. And he says this, But you, beloved, building yourself up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. He says this, he says, you need to build yourself up. <clears throat> Reminded me of when David, the Bible says in 1 Samuel 30, 
David encouraged himself in the Lord. You know, there's personal responsibility. We got we to gotta step up to the plate. We need to, there are times when we need to build ourselves up. We need to pray in the Holy Spirit. That can mean praying in tongues in a prayer language that the Holy Spirit has led you and has given you. It can also mean praying with the unction, leading, and um, anointing of the Holy Spirit. Many times the Holy Spirit will tell you exactly how to pray about a situation and will lead you into what to pray and how to pray. He also says to keep yourselves. Here again, personal responsibility. You got to keep yourself in the love of God, and that will hold you securely, praise God, and look for, expect, and await the coming of the Lord and the mercy that will come when he comes for his people and he regathers us and, and he takes us to be with him. He speaks of, in verse 24 and 25, I want to close with these, now to him who is able to keep you from falling, from stumbling, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. I want to stop right there for just a moment, and then I'm going to read the final verse in a moment. But first, I want you to understand something. Jesus is planning on presenting you and me to the Father with great joy. We cannot imagine, it blows our minds to even think, about the joy that he will have to be able to present us to the Father when we get to heaven. It blows our minds. It blows my mind. It blows my mind to think about that. But if you'll remember, Hebrews 12, 2 told us that the joy that was set before him is why he endured the cross. It was us. It was you and it was me who would believe in him, receive him, and be um, in relationship with him. And so now he's looking forward to that day when he will be able to walk us right into the presence of God the Father and say, Father, this one's mine. This one's ours. She or he belongs here with us. And we welcome you home. Think about that. And just I pray that that will bless you as you just even maybe Think and contemplate on that beautiful thought. Then he ends, To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. And all I can say is amen and amen to that. I pray this has been a blessing to you. And Lord willing, you can join us again for future episodes of Bible Bites. God bless you today. In Jesus' name.